for joining us. I'm Diane Rehm. President-elect Trump chooses a retired Marine Corps general to run the Pentagon. Cubans turn out to watch Fidel Castro's ashes travel across the country. And Russia talks with Syrian rebels over a possible ceasefire in Aleppo. Here for the International Hour, the Friday News Roundup of Darahim Fukara with Al Jazeera. Indira Lakshman on with the Boston Globe and Politico, and Mark Landler of the New York Times. Throughout the hour, we'll invite your questions and comments. Join us, 800-433-8850. Send your email to drshow at wamu.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Well, it's been quite a week. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Great to be nice here. To Good you, to see you all. And Mark Landler, uh, you have Donald Trump, the president-elect, announcing former General James Mattis to run the Pentagon. General Mattis is certainly widely respected, but he has been criticized for remarks he's made. He has. I mean, perhaps one of the most notable and and perhaps inflammatory of them was when he talked about uh, fighting in Afghanistan and made the observation that when you go into a society where they force women to wear veils, uh, it's actually a lot of fun to go in there and shoot people. Um, So there's a little bit of a Marine um, kind of uh, sort of swaggering Marine kind of ethic to the way that General Mattis talks. But what's fascinating about this this guy is he's also he's a real soldier scholar he's an intellectual and in fact in addition to his nickname mad dog mattis and his call sign which is chaos for the chaos he rains down upon the enemy he's also been called a warrior monk uh, and is considered extremely widely read and, in fact, has also been quoted as saying, one of the reasons I've never been caught flat-footed is because I read so much. He reads a lot of military history. He reads a lot of profiles of historical warriors. And so, you know, again, the irony is that a president who, by all accounts, doesn't read a great deal has chosen this rather introspective uh, scholarly figure to be defense secretary, even as we acknowledge he is given to some fairly swaggering pronouncements. I wonder how much difficulty he might have being confirmed. Um, I think that this might be one of President-elect Trump's easier confirmation tasks, honestly, because he is widely respected across the political spectrum. As Mark says, he said a lot of inflammatory things, but not ones that are so politicized. Um, Politico actually um, ran a story yesterday about nine unforgettable quotes by General Mattis, some of which are unrepeatable on polite airwaves. But some of my favorite are, he says, be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everybody you meet. I mean, that's terrifying. Um, It's terrifying, but it goes to what Mark was saying about him sort of being this tough guy with this tough guy swagger, who on the other hand has said that he has 10,000 books in his library, and he says that it saves you a lot of time You don't make the same mistakes other people made on the battlefield if you read about them. Engage your brain before you engage your weapon. And, Abderrahim, he he does seem to differ from Trump on a number of issues. He does. There's one thing uh, before we talk about how he differs 
uh, with uh, or from Trump, he does have one thing in common: the 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 total. Uh, disregard, as we've just heard now, for political correctness. He calls it the way he uh, sees it, and he doesn't care about that. That has uh, uh, overseas, for example, at the, that's going to cause him some problems uh, in the in the Middle East. But he's also going to win him some friends, and we can talk about that later on. But the differences that he he has had with uh, uh, he has with Trump uh, in terms of policy principle among those uh, differences which I imagine they've reconciled now is the position on uh, Iran um, basically he he's he wasn't a, a big fan of the line that the Obama administration has taken on uh, negotiations with uh, Iran although now that he is in the position uh, where Donald Trump has has tapped him for his cabinet he seems to think that tearing up the nuclear deal with Iran may not necessarily be such a good thing. Interesting. And on that, he was actually echoed this week by the current CIA director, John Brennan, who said what we should be doing it is enforcing it as hard as possible. Also in an op-ed in the Boston Globe, Alan Dershowitz, the retired law professor of Harvard who wrote an entire book attacking the Iran deal, saying it shouldn't be done, also came out in the Boston Globe saying you really should enforce it now. It doesn't make sense to tear it up. And one quick thought about Mattis, his outspokenness, I think, is going to be a real strength in serving in Trump's cabinet because he, he seems not afraid to speak out mm. to Trump and speak truth to power. And he has already said in his interview with Trump, we know that he's against torture. Indeed. It doesn't work. And he seems to have changed Trump's mind on that, hopefully. Mark. I, I think Indira's right when she said that this shouldn't be a complicated confirmation hearing, but he will need to obtain a waiver from Congress because he hasn't been out of uniform the required seven years. Right. Uh, and this raises a, a significant issue about uh, civilian military relations and civilian control of the military. He's not the first former general to serve as defense secretary. George Marshall did. Um, but uh, he's been a general recently, which means he's been involved in a lot of the military operations that are still ongoing. And among some in the Pentagon and the military community, there's a fear that if you put a general in who's been so recently involved and had such a stake in operations, it doesn't necessarily give him the distance and the objectivity he might need as Secretary of Defense. So I do think there is a valid debate to have about retired generals in these civilian jobs. He's not the first. Uh, Donald Trump's named Mike Flynn to be his national security advisor, and David Petraeus is a candidate to be Secretary of State. So you could see a very top-heavy cabinet with generals and retired generals, and I think that raises some issues as well. How high on the list is David Petraeus? You know, that's been a, a bit of an opaque process, to say the least. People's fortunes have risen and fallen. There's sort of, sort of seemed to be about four candidates, uh, Rudy Giuliani, the Is former New York really City mayor. Is he still in the running? There was thinking in the past week his stars receded, but there were some reports just today in the New York Post saying that uh, he's telling people he's been offered the job. So you ne you just can't know for sure. Mitt Romney, obviously, has been courted for it in a very visible way and has sort of pledged his allegiance.
allegiance to Donald Trump. David Petraeus has met with uh, Trump. Uh, and uh, finally, Senator Bob Corker, uh, the, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is, is also seen as a candidate. Uh, most of these guys, Corker accepted, come with um, pros and cons, uh, ranging from their business dealings to, in Petraeus's case, a scandal over the leaking of classified information. So we'll have to see. The thinking is that we'll probably know the answer to this over the weekend over or by early the weekend. next week. And, Abderrahim, which of those four do you think might work best with the Arab world? Probably David Petraeus. I mean, he's, uh, for one thing, very well known uh, throughout the Middle East uh, on account of his service in uh, Iraq and on account of the uh, counter-terrorism uh, strategy which he claims he devised originally in uh, Iraq, how to deal with the insurgency there. Uh, but the fact that he served in that part of the world, he understands the language, he understands the customs, and that would probably uh, give him some uh, advantage. If I may just uh, uh, quickly circle back to Mattis um, in the Middle East, I think Mattis is another link in the chain of confusion uh, that uh, Trump is uh, sowing in that part of uh, the world. Because if you take, for example, the Gulf region, take the Saudis in particular, on the one hand, uh, uh, Trump has been saying that these countries, they're U.S. allies, but they should be uh, forking out more money to uh, contribute to that partnership. Um, people are feeling a little jittery about that. Mm. On the other hand, having tapped Mattis, Knowing what Mattis's position on Iran is and knowing that there's a hot Cold War, uh, excuse the oxymoron, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, the Saudis will probably be fans of Mattis on that, in that particular department. And let's not forget, though, that General Mattis actually was forced to leave his command yes. early because of his disagreement, his very public disagreement, with the Obama administration over the Iran deal. Um, he has said that Iran is the biggest threat in the Middle East, and he has really singled it out. Um, so, you know, that that is something, as Mark pointed out, the fact that he is recently in uniform and the whole idea of someone who was in the military being over the entire Pentagon, which has, you know, at least least in the last few decades, really been more of a civilian post, I think is interesting. On the Secretary of State thing, I just want to mention um, that John Bolton is not out of the running. The former um, you know, U.S. Um, ambassador to the United Nations under George W. Bush, who's very polemical and very controversial, supposedly is still in talks with Donald Trump today. I personally have written in the Globe, I wrote a column about this last week, that I think Mitt Romney would be the best choice for Trump. I think it would be really, he'd be a sow to allies overseas who are very worried because he's very much in the foreign policy mainstream. Um, and he has, you know, been supportive of NATO. He was the one who you'll remember in 2012 um, said during the debate against President Obama that Russia was our biggest geopolitical foe. And uh, President Obama made fun of him and said, you know, uh, you're, the 1980s is calling. They want their foreign policy back. But he wasn't wrong. Indira Lakshmanana of the Boston Globe and Politico magazine. Short break. We'll be right back.
DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com slash newsletter. dcs.com slash newsletter. And welcome back. A number of you have called in to say that uh, General Mattis was misquoted. I have in front of me a quote from the New York Times uh, in which he said, you go into Afghanistan, you got guys that slap women around for five years because they didn't wear a veil. He said this in 2005. And then the end of that quote, so it's a hell of a lot of fun to shoot them. So I hope that that is the quote that many of you are concerned about. That is the quote that we have. Uh, Let's talk about Syria uh, uh, as we look at these secret talks between Russia and rebel groups in Aleppo, Abderrahim, what's going on? Well, the Financial Times is basically depicting these uh, talks as a first, as something uh, new. Um, But there are uh, people in the region, including among the Syrian opposition, including the Turks, who are saying that this is not new. The talks have been going on, various rounds of them, between the Russians and the the, the armed opposition uh, of uh, uh, Syria. Uh, incidentally, the Turks are basically acting as the go-between in the current round uh, of talks between Moscow and the Syrian rebels, hosting the talks in uh, uh, Ankara. Whether these talks about a ceasefire are actually going to lead to anything or not, I think it depends on how you interpret the Russian strategic position in Syria. Are they there, uh, the way they claim, uh, to basically fight terrorist groups, or are they there to help Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, uh, extend or restore his authority over the whole territory uh, uh, over the whole Syrian territory, as he's, he's said multiple times uh, he wants to do. If the aim is to basically buttress the regime of Bashar al-Assad to its former g- glory, so to speak, then no, it seems to me, no amount of talks to mm-hmm. achieve a ceasefire are actually going to lead to anything between the Russians and the, the Syrian rebels. Mark. And I don't think we should discount the effect that um, Donald Trump's election has had on the dynamics here either. Um, Trump, uh, during the campaign, made it clear that he is more sympathetic to the Russian position on this and that for him... Um, any political settlement that leads to the ouster of Assad takes a back seat to teaming up to fight the Islamic State. Uh, And I think the fact that the United States uh, will cease to be a player seeking Assad's ouster is going to change calculations on both sides, uh, both Assad himself, um, but the Russians and the rebels. The rebels, uh, the moderate rebels, will probably feel to some extent betrayed and thrown under the bus. 
and I think the Russians and Assad will feel much less pressure. Uh, this also comes on top of all the military advances they've made in eastern Aleppo just in recent days. So I feel like the election combined with a military offensive in Aleppo has really changed this dynamic, and the discussion we've had for months about the likelihood of a ceasefire is now happening in a fundamentally different context. And meanwhile, how dire is this situation in Aleppo? Absolutely awful. I mean, this is a city that was once the financial capital of Syria. It's been in rebel hands for a few years now, um, but the city is divided, and the Syrian government in just the last couple of months, backed by Russian air power, of course, has taken back 40% of the territory that had been controlled by rebels. You're talking about, according to UN estimates, more than 200,000 people who are trapped in Aleppo who don't have food. I mean, we've seen reports from the front lines of people literally starving to death, people who are now being evacuated. There was one story of a woman who was um, pushing her dead elderly mother in a wheelchair, and her mother had literally died of starvation because for days they hadn't had food. So the Syrian government has been utterly relentless about this, backed by, as Mark said, an emboldened Russian government, which I think is just going all out to take back Aleppo because they don't feel that the Obama administration is going to do anything mm -hmm. before in the next two months to stop them. And they know that Donald Trump has said his number one priority is fighting ISIS. And w this comes at the same time that the rebels in Aleppo have formed this new military exactly. alliance um, to try to have this united defense against um, the Syrians and the Russians. But I thought one of the most interesting and confusing things is what Abdul Rahim was talking about, which is the Turks and the Russians who have backed completely different sides in this, you know, more than five-year-long battle now that they are saying we both want a ceasefire, but they obviously have fundamentally different interests. The only thing that they agree on is they both think ISIS is bad, but the Russians and the Syrian government have used rebels as a catchphrase for anyone who's opposed to um, Bashar al-Assad, not just ISIS. I mean, the, the uh, as a follow-up to what Indira has just said, the, the, I think to better understand the Turkish position on this, you also have to bear in mind that relations with the Obama administration have not been so good, especially since the uh, attempted coup in, in, in Turkey with the Turks, the Turkish government saying that the United States is hosting a terrorist, uh, Fethullah Gulen, as, as they call him, mm. and he is behind the, uh, he was behind the, the, the attempted coup. The other thing is, as the Turks have uh, basically over the last five years pushed for the ouster of uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad, relations uh, re uh, reached a very difficult point with the Russians when the, the, the Russian military aircraft was downed in Turkish uh, territory. They have since patched things up uh, with, with, the, with, the, with the Russians. But here's the thing. The, it, it depends what the Russians do in Aleppo, because if uh, Aleppo... The, the arms to the rebels uh, uh, through that part of uh, Syria usually transited from Turkey to Aleppo. Mm -hmm. If the Russians uh, actually do manage to cut off that uh, that uh, route for the for the weaponry getting I in the hands of of the rebels, uh, two problems: the rebels themselves face a problem in, in Aleppo although they've formed now or they're trying to form this united army. But the other thing is, where do they go from Aleppo? The concern on the Turkish side is that many of them will seek to actually get into 
uh, Turkey, that becomes a huge problem for the Turks. All right, let's talk about ISIS in Iraq, uh, Mark. And yesterday, the Pentagon told reporters Iraqi forces are making significant progress in isolating Mosul. Tell us the significance there. Yeah, the... The, the offensive on Mosul has sort of come from the east and the southeast, uh, uh, trying to break into the city from those two sides. There's now a third axis coming in from the north, and what the Pentagon said yesterday in its briefing is that these troops are now really on the doorstep of Mosul. Um, another important development uh, w involved uh, Iraqi forces cutting off a highway that's west of Mosul, uh, and that's a main artery that connects Mosul with Syria. And so much as Abdurrahim was talking about routes for weapons to travel to Aleppo from Turkey, this is an important route uh, for supplies uh, to flow from Syria into Mosul to ISIS in the city. And cutting this off really isolates the troops that are in the city. None of this is to say that Mosul's on the verge of collapse. The situation's different in Mosul than in Aleppo. There's still deeply entrenched, embedded troops there. And, uh, you know, the ICRC and others have said that this is a battle that's likely to take months uh, to finally conquer uh, Mosul. But these are important early steps in the offensive. All right. But the question remains, if a General Mattis is indeed confirmed as Secretary of Defense, what is he going to do about all of these incredibly hot spots. Well, I mean, the important thing about General Mattis, as I think I tried to say earlier, is he's had experience in all these things. He was an actual battlefield commander in Iraq, uh, so he will bring all his prior experiences. Will he change how the U.S. Response in these areas. Ultimately, the D defense secretary is a member of the president's cabinet, so it will depend entirely on what President-elect Trump wants to do. You've and heard President-elect Trump say some pretty outlandish things, like we're going to, in Syria, bomb the whatever out of them. I mean, one has to wonder. Well, you know, the thing about Donald Trump on this topic, as on many others, is that there's been a lot of contradictory signals. He's talked about avoiding the mistakes of George W. Bush in Iraq. He's talked about as you say, bombing uh, ISIS into oblivion. He's also, at one point in a Republican debate, talked about deploying twenty to 30,000 American ground troops because he'd been told by the generals that was a possible successful strategy. So there's a great deal of uncertainty about what the ground truth of his strategy is going to be, but that, to me, is almost as important as what Mattis's experience is. Mattis will be a persuasive voice. He won't be the only voice that the president listens to on this. Yeah, Mark's absolutely right, and and particularly on the point that Trump has been so contradictory. While he did make the comment about potentially putting U.S. troops on the ground to fight ISIS, more recently he has said the opposite, that he would never put U.S. troops on the ground. So in some ways it's almost as if he's most influenced by who he last spoke to, who impresses him as knowing a lot of things. You're going to have two generals, one in the cabinet, one right there whispering in his ear in the White House, his national security advisor, both of whom have a very strong view against Islamic State, both of whom have a very full-on view, but is going to be perhaps 
modulated by whoever he chooses as Secretary of State. Um, and, you know, look, I, I think it, it remains to be seen. It's been hard for the Obama administration to deal with it. I don't know that it's going to be any easier for the Trump administration to do better. And one of the people apparently Trump has spoken with recently is Russian President Vladimir Putin. At first, we were told that Putin had spoken with people around Trump. Now, Putin is saying he has spoken directly to Trump. What's that conversation perhaps been like, Abderi? Well, I would imagine, just first of all, on the face of it, based on all the things that Trump had said during the election campaign, that it would have been a very friendly uh, conversation and from Putin's point of view a very constructive conversation with uh, uh, Putin. Uh, Hillary is out of the way. Um, we all know that the Russians were not particularly uh, looking forward to having Hillary as, as, the, as the president. Obama is about to get out of the way in a couple of months. We know that the Russians you know for all the talks with John Kerry uh, over Syria they have not been feeling uh, uh, very easy about the Obama administration with Trump at least up to this point in time they seem to feel that they can work with him in the same way that he said that he can work with them uh, over many issues including uh, Syria and the Middle East at uh, uh, at large if i may just say very quickly um uh, uh, about uh, uh, Mattis and uh, and uh, 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 Trump, it also depends on how much slack Trump will actually cut Mattis to deal with things that are happening outside the United States. Given uh, Trump's interest in dealing, at least according to what he says, with things happening in the United States. And you're listening to the Diane Rehm show. And here's a caller in Richmond, Virginia. David, you're on the air. Hi, Dan. First-time caller, long-time listener. Um, I wanted to ask about the um, – one of the panelists said something about the Russian position being only either to prop up Bashar al-Assad or to fight terrorism. And it was sort of presented as if they were mutually exclusive plans. Uh, but sort of what I see is like a two-prong, like a two-step approach uh, to Syria, wherein they would like to end the civil war, quell terrorism, to then uh, ensure the integrity of the Syrian state and possibly transition Assad out of power. But I don't think they're exclusive. I think they kind of have to go one after the other. And so I just wanted to see what the panelists thought about, you know, presenting that as like mutually uh, those as mutually exclusive objectives in Syria by right I don't think that's what either you, Mark, or you, Indira, intended. No, hmm? not, no at not at all. I mean, I guess the point I would make is that the Russians have a couple of, of priorities that I think in some cases are complementary. They've got strate they have a very big strategic stake in Syria, and, uh, and Assad has been a client of theirs. So there is a, a strategic stake there in preserving the sovereignty, integrity of that regime. Uh, and then they have a very major stake in fighting the Islamic State, as does the United States and its partners. So I don't see this as an either-or. Um, they happen to be happening in the same theater, uh, so they're sometimes presented as being, uh, you know, a question of priorities. But they're both 
is, you know, I, I would argue they're both extremely important to the Russians. Yes, that's right. I think the Russians are trying to do both at the same time, and so far they've been successful in doing both at the same time. The either-or is that um, the United States says that some of the rebels are terrorists and others of the rebels are not. Some of the some of the rebels, remember, are being backed by the CIA, um, and the Russians say, no, there's no either-or, that anyone who's a rebel against Assad, they're all terrorists, which is the same line that Assad himself has taken. A couple of uh, uh, days ago, Madeleine Albright, who was, we all know, was Secretary of State for Bill Clinton, Stephen Hadley, who was uh, a National Security Advisor in the second Bush administration, one Democrat, one Republican, they uh, launched the bipartisan uh, uh, task force uh, for Middle East strategy. And one of the things that the, the study uh, touched upon is the issue of Bashar al-Assad. And both of them uh, said that they see Bashar al-Assad as a source of uh, terrorism rather than as a potential ally in the fight against terrorism as far as the United States is concerned. And therefore, from that uh, point of view, uh, there's not going to be, if the Trump administration does adopt that point of view, there's not going to be a lot of uh, agreement with the, with the Russians because the Russians do see uh, um, uh, uh, supporting Bashar al-Assad and fighting terrorism in uh, Syria and throughout the Middle East as one and the same. Abderrahim Fakara, he is Washington Bureau Chief for Al Jazeera, Indira Lakshman, on foreign policy columnist for the Boston Globe, a contributor to Politico magazine, Mark Landler, White House correspondent for the New York Times, He's the author of Alter Egos, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and the Twilight Struggle over American Power. Short break. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the International Hour of our Friday News Roundup. This week with Indira Lakshman on Mark Landler and Abderrahim Pukhara. Let's uh, go right back to the phones to Hussam. You're on the air. Hi, Diane. Hi. I have a question with regarding uh, choosing General James Mateus uh, for... Secretary of Defense. Sure. Um, uh, is I know that uh, there is a precedent for doing that. Can we talk about the implications of changing the law to allow him to serve as Secretary of State? Mark. Well, I think first of all, we, what we're talking about is um, granting a waiver. So you're not uh, abrogating the law. Um, you're 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 basically granting him a waiver. And I think that. Um, I think the important point you're raising, which is a very valid one, 
is whether it's wise to have not just a general, but one who's very recently been in uniform uh, running the Pentagon, uh, or for that matter, any of the other civilian national security jobs. And given that we have another general uh, designate as national security advisor and a candidate for secretary of state who was also a general, I think there's this real question about whether uh, one thing you'll lose is civilian control, and secondly, whether there'll be an over-militarization of our foreign policy. And by that, I don't necessarily mean that we will pull the military lever more than we should. Generals have a very sort of mixed record, actually, on the use of force. If you look at the Obama administration as a precedent, General Petraeus and General McChrystal were rather aggressive about deploying a large number of troops into Afghanistan in the early years of the administration. In some of the later debates over military force, General Dempsey uh, and Admiral Mullen were actually somewhat much more restrained, whether it was getting involved in um, the Libya uh, Arab Spring uh, revolt or later getting involved militarily with a no-fly zone in Syria, the Pentagon in both of those cases took a, a much more restrained, cautious approach. So generals don't automatically equal putting us into war. But what they do is they do think about foreign policy problems from a military perspective as opposed to diplomatic or development perspective. And I think the valid question here is whether the president will get the variety of opinions he needs for tackling foreign policy problems or whether everything will be seen through the prism of the military. And, and just being in charge of the Pentagon doesn't mean that you necessarily see things from a military or through a military prism because remember Bob Gates, who was a, defense, a civilian defense secretary, both for Republican and Democrat presidents, um, formed this real alliance with Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, where his push was, hey, we're being asked to do all these things that the Secretary of State's department should be doing, like, you know, building wells, doing development work, all these provincial reconstruction teams in Afghanistan. He said, that's not our role. And he begged Congress to give more money to the State Department budget. With Hillary Clinton sitting next to him, he said, this is ridiculous. You keep throwing money at us at the Pentagon when we don't need more money, when it's really the State Department that needs more money to do development. I mean, on on Trump's predilection for generals, I would just say Trump clearly leans macho. He loves macho guys. And we know this, you know, he the, his admiration he has for Putin. You know, he likes guys who ride bareback shirtless. So, you know, this is he even announced um, General Mattis's, you know, naming by referring to him as Mad Dog Mattis. He didn't even say General James Mattis. And Mad Dog is apparently a nickname that General Mattis himself does not does overlook. Love. Like, yeah. And as Abdul Rahim was reminding us, that was the name that Ronald Reagan used for Gaddafi. He said he was the mad dog of the Middle East. So it's not necessarily complimentary, but I think that Trump himself sees it as colorful, which, by the way, is the same word that Putin used in Russian to describe Trump during the campaign. And a lot of people translated it as bright, but it's not actually what Putin said. Putin said colorful. <laughs> uh, I mean, he he also uh, referred to him or compared him to uh, General Patton. Uh, exactly, what, he made that comparison. Yes, he made that that uh, that uh, comparison. Strength. Yeah, in terms of the strength, uh, uh, but also in terms of uh, Patton's vision, uh, uh, vision of uh, vision of war. But I think at the end of the day, um, things will uh, become clearer when the chips are down. The chips are down in a place like Syria, for example. Whether he is close, whether Mattis is close to 
Trump's vision or not. In a situation like Syria, the issue of toppling Bashar al-Assad is obviously not going to be on the on the on the agenda for for, for for Trump, but actually letting the Russians prop him up completely is going to cause problems for the United States with the Saudis. As just one example, uh, because the Saudis feel that if Bashar is propped up, then that gives the Iranians further influence in the Saudi uh, neighborhood. What a complicated world we live in. Well, and the only other point I'd make is that there are other personalities we're going to have to pay attention to who may be important. Uh, the vice president-elect, uh, Mike Pence, has been apparently very conscientiously getting every intel briefing that he can and reading through papers and trying to come get up to speed on these issues. I Whereas... President-elect Trump apparently is doing a little less of that, exactly. um, not taking uh, the intel community up on its offer of briefings, not reading as much. Well, uh, how do you how do you reconcile that with an election when the people of America have, uh, with the Electoral College on the 19th of December, elected him president? How can he not? view these intelligence briefings, does he not consider them important? Well, I can't get inside his head, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to venture a guess, uh, but I do think, I mean, the argument the Trump transition people have made is, look, he's meeting with 10, 15 people a day, his day is already 12 hours long, there'll be time for intelligence briefings when he gets through this intense period of putting but a cabinet together. But shouldn't he be examining those as he makes his choice. Absolutely. And I think that his unwillingness so far to do that has been revealed in some of these uh, rather bizarre telephone calls he's had with foreign leaders. Uh, if you if you look at the one he had with the Pakistani prime minister, uh, he managed to upset a decade of diplomacy in, in South Asia with a, a friendly, uh, you know, two, three minute phone call. Uh, he also lavished praise on the president of Kazakhstan, uh, who's a communist strongman who uh, was reelected in his last election with 97.7 percent of the vote. Uh, and President-elect Trump told the man that his performance was a miracle. So, you know, you have a president who's who's winging it. He's, uh, he's a seat-of-his-pants kind of player. He's going to continue to be that. He's clearly not changing his stripes uh, just because he's gotten the job. And I think for the, you know, for the folks who wear pinstripes at the State Department, every day is a new adventure when they see what this guy's uh, com conversations are with foreign leaders. Conversations, by the way, that it appears that the State Department has had no role in preparing him for either in talking points or background. So it truly, we are in an uncharted territory. It's stunning, really. I mean, you know, as it is, State Department Foreign Service officers complain bitterly about certain secretaries of state not reading their briefing books enough. Hillary Clinton was well known to have inhaled, basically memorized photographically every word in her briefing book. Her, uh, the current Secretary of State, um, John Kerry, is much more of a seat of his pants guy doesn't read every single word of the briefing book. But this is unprecedented that Donald Trump is not even asking for the briefing book, much less opening it up to read it. And the Pakistani call was a really interesting one because the Pakistani government did something which is not normal to do, which is they released a verbatim transcript, or at least a supposedly verbatim transcript um, of the conversation that the Trump campaign has not disputed. And what's so striking about it is 
honestly, how shallow it was that Trump basically just said, you're the greatest leader ever. You're fantastic. Pakistan's a fantastic country. I can't wait to come there. It's beautiful. You're beautiful. It's all beautiful. It was crazy. You know, and this is the same man who during the campaign criticized Pakistan so much. Now, of course, once you're elected president, much better that you should be friendly with Pakistan. But there was no substance in the conversation. That's my point. It was just a bunch of superlatives. To go now to Pat in Mountjoy, Pennsylvania. You're on the air. Hello, Diane. Uh, Thank you for all you do. You're a treasure. Um, There's been so much talk about Mr. Trump building a wall between his business and conflicts. But what about all of his properties should al-Qaeda or ISIS decide to have an attack against his, uh, you know, uh, one of his hotels in Istanbul? Um, What would that do? Uh, How would that complicate both his business and the international situation in terms of a crisis when his business and presidency would then be so intertwined. Well, I, I think it's an extremely important question. It's one that we've tried to, uh, to to explore in our newspaper in the past couple of weeks, and it's and it sort of cuts both ways. One is, what is the threat that these Trump-branded properties pose? And and it, we should note, by the way, that he doesn't necessarily own a lot of these buildings. He sort of but um, his brand, his brand name, he yeah. licenses his name. So there are local developers in each of these countries that have poured tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into projects that you could argue now are big, fat targets. For terrorists. So that's one issue. But secondly, um, the fact that he has all these business arrangements in these countries then raises a whole range of questions about whether U.S. policy will be influenced, whether he might uh, give countries preferential treatment or give certain players within countries preferential treatment or not do certain things because he would harm interests and relationships he has in these countries. So there are – in, and it goes across the globe from the Philippines to India to, to Latin America to Turkey, uh, and nothing he said so far suggests he's willing to sever those ties to the extent he would need to to avoid these issues. I mean, I would only add that in the specific case of Turkey, for example, because Turkey is so close to the line of uh, uh, fire in the Middle East, should there be an attack on one of his properties in in Turkey, then yes, obviously that's going to open a can of worms. Uh, Will the United States be defending United States property or will it be defending the property of the individual called uh, Donald Trump, um, especially if there's loss of life while defending uh, that, that, that property on the part of uh, the United States if Turks or Americans get, uh, get killed. But look, I find it amazing that uh, we as media did not go to the lengths we are going to now to discuss these things during the election campaign. And I listened to your first hour, and it... it, 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 it it's a it's a really a, a fascinating situation because it seems to me that even if we had tackled these things and covered them uh, 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 um, amply during the election campaign, the people who decided to vote for him, there's nothing it seems that would have made them change their mind about voting for him. Back again to the question of facts and whether certain media have certain facts and other media have other facts and whether people believe what they choose to believe, and that's where we are, Mark. No, it is. And, and you know, Abdurrahim is right. Uh, I think this question of his web of international business connections 
was underexplored. I don't think, however, that the question of him not paying federal income taxes for more than a decade was underexplored. That was on the front page of our newspaper. Uh, and it's worth noting that at the uh, Harvard Symposium yesterday, where the campaign teams of Trump and Clinton met to sort of do a postmortem uh, on the campaign and why Trump won and Hillary lost, that Corey Lewandowski, uh, the former campaign manager for Trump, suggested that the editor of the New York Times should be jailed for having run the article on Donald Trump's taxes. And Amazing assertion. And you're listening to the Diane Rehm show. And even with the election over at the carrier plant yesterday, uh, when he mentioned Hillary Clinton, his opponent in the election, lock her up. People have shouted from the audience, lock her up, even though Donald Trump himself has backed off from saying that he would do that. But the animus is not done. And as Mark said at the Kennedy School at Harvard yesterday, there were, you know, there was a lot of bad blood between the campaign managers and top aides for Clinton and care and uh, Trump, where Clinton's people were saying, you know, you trafficked in hate and you leveraged bigotry and you knew what you were doing. You and Kelly and Conway. Oh, yeah. 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 No, I mean, it was it's, extremely bitter. And, and Jen Palmieri, who's the communications director for Clinton, uh, said at one point, and I want to say I'm paraphrasing here, but the, the, the quote was, I would rather have uh, lost than won using the tactics that you, the Trump campaign, used. Interesting. All right. Let's talk about Fidel Castro, whose ashes are now traveling across the country to on a four day journey across Cuba. Yes. So the, the 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 leader Maximo, as they call him in in in, in Cuba, or the the Caudi or whatever they 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 call him there, is finally uh, gone uh, after a, a period of a long period of uncertainty as to his fate. Was he actually dead? Was he not? Uh, what his state of health was? Uh, what it Do was we not. know how he died? Uh, we don't know how he died. So basically, his brother uh, Raúl, who's been uh, in charge, came out and he said Castro is gone, and his wish was to be uh, uh, cremated. And in the world of politics, these are very important symbolic uh, issues, whether you choose to be cremated or to be buried, or uh, especially given uh, Cuba's or the, the, the regime's uh, uh, relationship with uh, Catholicism in, in, in Cuba. The fact that he chose, according to Raul, to be uh, cremated is definitely something to be uh, uh, cremated. But no matter... The fact that is that a lot of Cubans in Cuba um, are basically uh, mourning the passing of uh, uh, Castro as someone who's led them, ironically, through 60 years of uh, hardship, the hardship imposed by the embargo. But it was also very significant that on the other side of the waters in, in Miami, there was jubilation that uh, exactly. Castro uh, is gone and that the Castro era is gone. Well, I've been to Cuba many times, and plenty of Cubans in Cuba were not mourning Fidel's passing. And it it's fair to say, I mean... Fidel has been out of power for 10 years. He handed over the presidency to his brother in 2006. And, um, you know, basically it's already been in Raul Castro's hands. And part of what he's been doing is trying to privatize the economy. I don't think we can say that there's going to be a sudden change between before Fidel's death and after in the sense that Raul has already been running the show for well, a decade. But the, the human rights abuses um, will not be missed. And uh, But I think that the Castro regime remains even with Fidel gone. What about the Trump regime's reaction to 
Castro well, Donald, in Cuba. Donald Trump issued an extremely toughly worded uh, uh, description of sort of good riddance to Fidel Castro, and, and he's also said that he would revisit President Obama's diplomatic opening to Cuba. And so I think one of the things you'll see the Obama administration try to do in its final weeks is to sew up that deal as tightly as it can so that it won't be reversed or it'll be much more difficult to reverse by Mark, the new president. Mark Klantler and Dara Lachman of Dara Thank you all so much. And we've been talking about the Trump transition. I talked with Jane Mayer earlier this week. You can hear that conversation on our website. Go to drshow.org and click on blog. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Diane Reed.